0: So welcome to Carousine Crime. I am delighted to have with me this evening, Kirk Nurme. He is a man who's familiar to anyone who followed Jody Arias' two trials between 2013 and 2015. She's the client who made him famous, whether he likes it or not. His book, Trapped with Misarius, Part 1 of 3, From Getting the File to Being Ready for Trial, is an enlightening look inside the case from his perspective. It includes what he was thinking at various times between becoming lead counsel in 2009 and the start of the first trial on January 2nd, 2013. It also includes some of his strategies and why he employed them, and most important, his relationship to his client, Jody Arias. So let's get to it. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me. Hello, Beth. How are you? I'm fine. So as I just Good. mentioned to you off uh, off air, you're not on the witness stand, and there's no judge to compel you to answer, but I do have a lot of questions. And I invited members of my website, com, to also submit some questions. So I will be peppering some of their questions in with mine. And many of them have read your book. Some have not. Uh, and some of my questions are answered in your book, but I'm going to ask them anyway for those who haven't. And I also have one more thing to tell you, and that is that, you know, a a number of the members who, who read the book have a much better perspective of what you were grappling with for all those years. You certainly laid it all out there. And one member in particular, her name is Anita, does want you to know that, while she doesn't always agree with your strategy or didn't during the trial, she's definitely very open to hearing what you have to say today.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear Anita is, and I hope uh, everyone else shares her viewpoint.
0: Great. So the big question, first of all, is why did you write this book? What was your goal in writing it and the next two to come?
1: Well, you know, I began after the trial was over. You know, anybody who's done a capital case, any attorney who's done a capital case will tell you it's a pretty intense experience. And this was an intense experience that lasted for about five years. And for me, after it was over, uh, you know, in, in March, basically in March of this year, um, I began to kind of reflect upon it. It was a very arduous process. It was a life and career altering process for me. And I began to just, uh, think about the process and think about what I went through. And, uh, I started writing a little bit. I was also working, uh, on my weight loss book, uh, was, that I called "Trim or More," there is a silly statement my wife made one day when tired when I was losing this weight, and I had a lot of people ask me about the weight loss, and of course, I had a lot of people ask me about the trial. So as I began to work through the trial and the process, it was somewhat cathartic to me to write these things down, and I also felt like some goals in my uh, of writing the book were to kind of get the set the record straight, get the facts out there. I say facts are stubborn things uh many times during this book, and to um to hopefully get people to look at the case in in a different way, not only in terms of the case itself but in terms of how we treat these cases in our society and the and the individuals involved. I have a whole chapter that I say I talk about uh Wishing I never got to file, wishing the tragic of events of June fourth, two thousand eight. I wish they never took place. And hoping maybe somebody out there who reads the book or hears about the book and, and my take on the book might reassess their own situation. So we have so tragedies that happen like what happened on June fourth, two thousand eight. Excuse me, don't happen again.
0: You know, um it, it being a death case, I know that was controversial. I've talked to prosecutors in other jurisdictions who told me, for example, in Los Angeles, that they probably would not have sought death in this case. So, you know, it's very subjective uh, if one state seeks it uh, and, and one doesn't. But even though you are very, very firmly against the death penalty, a few times in the book, you I think you actually come out and say, you know, she would have gotten death or you you wanted her to get death or something like that. Well, I mentioned I
1: mentioned some evidence that I think would have increased the likelihood if they were going to seek the death penalty of how they could have got it. Um, but no, I, I I hope that in any way was not taken as a way why I wanted wanted Messaris to get the death penalty. In fact, I talk about the the disparity not only across borders. I mean, those of us who are against the death penalty. See that disparity of a crime that's committed in California, uh, where there's no death penalty, to, to my understanding, and versus if it happened in Arizona, someone could be subject to the death penalty. So we have this uh, the disparity there, but there is even disparity within the cases in Maricopa County. Prosecutors have a great deal of discretion. I mentioned in my book a, a man who was uh, driving with his wife and stabbed her 25 times and rather coldly. Drove her body to the, her dead body full of 25 stab wounds to the police station and said, Oh, here she is. And uh, he was charged with second degree murder. And boy, you know, it's hard to see how do we get to a point where this man is charged with second degree murder and Jody Arias is facing the death penalty. And in that, I saw some injustice as well.
0: Yeah. um, Did you say California does have the death penalty? Do they, they, do they, wh- they don't execute much these days, but they do have it, because um, I've All covered right, some. Well, uh, well, I'll change my example to New York, New York and then where I am. Oh, New it. York. Oh, oh is, I'm sorry. But, okay. okay. Yeah, we don't have it here. We had it for right. a short time after I left um, the DA's office. Have you received any reaction from uh, Jody Arias about your book?
1: No. What about... Her oh. support, her, her supporters certainly are uh, upset. As, you know, I mentioned in the book, I talk about... I'm sure when I write this book, they're going to be upset that I didn't, you know, get her off, you know, acquit her, get her free her. Uh, So certainly I've heard uh, from her supporters, but not from her or her family. Nothing, nothing of that nature.
0: And what about her appellate attorneys? Anyone? Any fallout legally? No. Okay. Did you know that Juan Martinez was writing a book when you were writing yours?
1: The process of me writing a book. Was a long one, so I think you know somewhere around that journey, uh, I was, I had heard that, um, but but not when I started.
0: Okay. And before I get into like details of the case, uh, do you believe that your book or his book, possibly theoretically, could affect her appeal and maybe cause a new trial? In terms
1: of what I put in my book, I was very conscious of the ethical guidelines that I need to follow as an attorney and the fact that her case is on appeal. I did not put anything in my book that I felt like would jeopardize uh, that situation for her. Uh, as it relates to Mr. Martinez's book, uh, it's hard to speak to that because it's it's not out yet. I haven't, I haven't read anything uh, as to what he has written.
0: Okay, so let's get to some of the... Um detailed questions i have you know the photos that were deleted from the camera which was recovered from the washing machine i was always scratching my head about that like what the heck was that camera doing there uh she got rid of the knife and the gun uh she she could have easily taken that camera at least the little card out of it the memory card and buried it in the sand somewhere uh it had to have been a mistake but do you think that if she had taken the camera with her that she would have still been charged with first degree murder or charged at all
1: well, 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 let me correct one thing for you, and I certainly I'm going to discuss uh, this more in, in, in my next book uh, when I talk about the trial evidence, but we do not know, and I do bring this up in this book, we do not know that the knife was never recovered. It could have been in Travis's house. It wasn't identified as a murder weapon. There were big knives in his house. No knife was specifically identified as the murder weapon. So... Beyond that, um, you know, we did still have the uh, mixture of DNA, of her blood and his blood. I believe that inevitably would have been discovered, and I think that probably uh, would have been enough to charge her with the crime.
0: Okay. I do think, though, that those photos just may—I mean, I don't know. I think that they— might have had an effect in her various stories in the prosecutor's decision to go for the highest highest charge and the ultimate penalty. You know, that well, she was her what, what, worst enemy. What
1: photos, are you, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but what photos specifically do you mean I don't, motivated the higher penalty?
0: I think it was just, you know, the fact that um, there were these very pornographic photos and then the, the, the accidental photos of the actual killing I don't know. Well, Somehow I, they, they just corroborate it all and it just it's just kind of gross. Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly
1: visceral, right? I mean, you know, you, you've you been a prosecutor for a number of years and, and no prosecutors. And how many how many times, at least in, in past years, do you have anything where you you have a murder documented? I mean, it might things might happen if there's security video or something of that nature nowadays. Nowadays, we see more crimes on video. There is certainly that visceral aspect of, you know, his body in the shower and the and the damage done to it. But, you know, the pornographic uh, the pornographic images. Why that would motivate uh, a higher charge is hard for me to discern because I would think it would motivate uh, just the opposite. I mean, we,
0: which is why we, you used them, right? To much to uh, your client's chagrin, but. It's, so, it's something about her having sex with him. You know, and, You know, if you believe the prosecution's theory that it was premeditated, that she was sort of seducing him and having her last sex with him, and then she was getting him in a very vulnerable position, naked, wet, sitting in the shower, to then attack him. It, it's just, it's something just sick about it. And, you know, if you but, believe they're, but, they're but there's something very
1: illogical about it, too. I think if we're discussing it, it honestly, we have to say, okay, if you're going anywhere to commit a murder, forget about close on, close off, whatever. Is that person who's committing the murder going to be inclined to let a person take photographs of them at the crime scene?
0: Doesn't make any sense. I know it's, right? it's all it's all strange. I know. And
1: and so so in that regard, you know,
0: if you have
1: an uh, you know, an alibi established. I talk about this in my book, why I think this, this, this happened this way or things happen this way. is You know, if you buy this theory that she went there with the intent to kill him when she walked in the door and she needed to be in Utah in 8 hours or 12 hours or whatever it was at that point in time, she didn't do it and get back up to Utah and excuse her absence on getting lost or taking a nap or anything else. So... In order to buy that theory, you would have to say she stayed in the crime scene for 12-plus hours and had sex with him and let the nude photos be taken of him and then decided to kill him. And then, of course, we have the, the concept or idea, dueling ideas of, well, did she shoot first or did she, or did she stab first? And under the state's theory, then there was this stab First. And so you're telling me she stole a gun and drove all this way and waited 12 hours and then decided to stab him instead of shooting him? That, uh, you know, if you think about it that way, to me, that doesn't make sense.
0: Well... If you look at the timeline, first of all, when she arrives at four in the morning, she's not going to kill him until the roommates are gone. We know Enrique Cortez was home. I think uh, Zach Billings may have been at his girlfriend's or something, but Enrique was home. So she's not going to shoot him while there was a roommate in the house. Okay, so she had any time from the time he left for work, but they're sleeping and um, then they have sex. And I mean, she's killing him at. Well, they're downstairs at about 5, but he's dead at 5.32, assuming the timestamp stamp on the camera is accurate, right? Because she's dragging him back to the shower at 5.32. And Enrique's due home at 6. So um, she's working pretty quickly after they get upstairs and he gets in the shower at 5.10 or whatever. She's working pretty quickly. So I want to go back to the knife for a second. I don't think she would have taken the time to put the knife back in the in the dishwasher. She would have just taken it with her to get rid of it if if it were a knife from the house but if she actually if you're saying you know it was it was a fight you know that he attacked her and she still i mean she went in that bathroom with the weapons or both weapons were already in there and um there was no time from the time she was taking the photos until we know she's dragging him back to the shower i mean enrique cortez i've spoken to him he um he told me he's he doesn't remember the washing machine being on when he came home, but it would have been on if if he came home after she left the house. I, I think it's also theoretically possible she like he he came home because he came in through the garage that he would have uh, she could have hidden in Travis's office and then he went straight up to his room and then she could have left and he just never would have seen her. Anyway, she had to work quickly, is what I'm saying. Agree. Right, but
1: I, I don't necessarily. Uh, that would, that would, and I, and I outline my theory, but I think your are premise, you're based on the premise that she knew what time he was going to get home. And then again, the question would be, why didn't she do it at one in the afternoon when they were both awake, uh, having sex?
0: Correct. Why or not kill when him you sleeping instead
1: of taking pictures? Yes. Correct. Or when he's sleeping. The, yeah. Why not kill him before he wakes up? You could certainly make the argument uh, that she couldn't do it right away when, when he was home, but uh, you know, four in the morning, Enrique sleeping. These are also, um, Enrique was somebody who slept next to a dead, rotting body for four days and didn't notice. Um, I think you can make a viable argument that maybe she could have got away with it. Yeah. But I guess the other argument I would make to you is if that was the plan, uh, why wouldn't she just say, oh, let's hang out in your room and, uh, not go to sleep and have sex right then and there? Because, remember, she testified that Travis wanted have sex, and I, I guess it makes sense, as I say in the book, that he would have. Why not just stay up for a few more hours, wait for good old Ricky to leave, and then commit the killing? Right. Why not?
0: Right. Well, let me um, move away from the bathroom, although we, okay. back. we might come back to the bathroom. Um, the phone sex recording, why do you yeah. think she recorded it on May 10th? I mean, were there others? I, is it the only recording of sex?
1: I don't want to go into anything uh, confidential okay. on that, you know, anything that I can't disclose.
0: Okay.
1: Um, her, you know, her motivations for recording it, well, we know she testified that he wanted to do it. There is no, I, you know, I, I see lots of speculation that she was going to blackmail him, things of that nature. I, I address this briefly in the book. There's no evidence. There's no evidence to support that. If she was going to do something nefarious with this recording and she really wanted to harm him in some way and harm his reputation, she could have disclosed she could have just put that recording on the internet and that that would have been quite a blow to Mr Alexander's life.
0: And it was on the phone the that I she can. lost. Right? She wouldn't yeah. have lost the phone, I suppose. I don't know. Maybe she just wanted to play it again for herself. I I don't know.
1: I... Maybe, but there's no. Yeah, there's no evidence. I, I hear all this speculation, and and I have not seen a a speck of evidence that she was intending to do anything with it. Maybe because she lost the song. Maybe not. I don't know. But there is certainly uh, no evidence of that.
0: So, who do you think had the most uh, control in the relationship? I know you talk about that a little bit. You know Jody's ability to manipulate Travis having control. I mean, who do you think had more control in their relationship?
1: I, I don't think I don't think either one of them had more control because I think there was a. You know, I, I briefly mentioned this in the book. There was someone they seemed to be addicted, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, when somebody's addicted to another person, probably neither one of them feel like they have much control.
0: I mean, we because heard, they
1: know they need the other person, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. We, you know, there definitely was. I mean, they couldn't stay away from each other. That's true. I, you know, I guess. But um, you know, we know a lot from Jody when she was on the stand for all those days, and I understand your strategy was to do exactly. I mean, you convinced four jurors to vote for life because they just connected with her in some way or felt like they knew her after 18 days on the stand. I understand that, but we don't, we can't hear from Travis. So we don't know his side of the relationship and the closest we could have known his side of the relationship was what he wrote in his journals, but they mysteriously disappeared. And I know the Hugheses believe and maybe others that Jody took them.
1: I I would take issue with the fact that we don't know much about Travis's Thoughts on the side of the relationship because we can't hear from it. Because there's the old saying, actions speak louder than words, right? Mm-hmm. And we know his actions, don't we? You know, this goes back to facts being stubborn things. And we know that he had Jody Arias over to his home on June 4th, 2008 and had sex with her and took news photos of her. We you know that, right?
0: Yes, but did you say somewhere in the book I couldn't find it, but a, a friend of mine told me it was in there that that there was a text inviting her. No, there's no text inviting her. Was was there?
1: No, 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 no. There was, there was. They had called. They had had a phone conversation in uh, when she was in Pasadena, and they had they had talked that on the phone. They had talked about her him coming to visit her in Wairika and going to Shakespeare Festival in uh, Medford, I believe. So, um, you know, I think we can can certainly discern something from conduct, right? I mean, he was having phone sex with her on May 10th of 2008, and he had her over for this sexual tryst in June of 2008. I don't think we can say that we know nothing about how he felt about the relationship based on uh, the fact that we don't have his journals.
0: No, okay. I don't mean to. Um, I don't mean to say that we know nothing, but the best. Uh, I mean, we can't hear from him, and the closest thing be- besides putting together all the evidence you did put together would would have been his journals. His, in his words, describing the relationship. I think that if she took them, it's because he was saying things that might be negative about her in them. Do you know anything about that?
1: No, I. Th- and I think. Um, I think you know that's that's speculation, uh, obviously, and I wouldn't speculate on that. But mm-hmm. um, no.
0: Okay, I thought he accused her of it too. But okay, so the, May tenth they're having phone sex, and then May twenty sixth they had that horrible fight, that G chat fight. Yeah. Uh, which may have occurred through another medium too. Did they talk on the phone? I'm not sure. Um, and my
1: right? Oh, okay. Go ahead.
0: Well. You discuss that in the book. You discuss why you believe that wasn't the precipitating event that caused her to premeditate and to drive down to Mesa. You take every single piece of what the prosecution calls premeditation and you give a different explanation for it, right? So you you do not. Well, believe-
1: I, I, I give my belief. I give my beliefs at the time, and I question. I question whether that could be the motivating force because some of the factors we discussed before. I mean, we're talking, and I mentioned in the book, though we're talking about 10 days or so of rage that would have been tapped, so to speak, when she got to the home and tapped for another 11 hours until she exacts her plan. And it just logic, and I use logic and I use facts, uh, and that's what I discuss in the book. I don't necessarily speculate in the book as to, you know... What, what she could have been thinking, and I look at just objectively, and objectively speaking, it seems difficult for me to believe that she would have engaged in all these events, uh, done all these things, and wound up in a position where 12 hours after being in Travis's home, she effectuates a plan. I don't
0: know. I, I think that the argument would have been a, a good one if she hadn't also... She, coincidentally, intentionally, whatever, shut her phone off. Never, you know, never had a transaction in the state of Arizona because even if she had a cash transaction at a gas station, there's still cameras, they still could have caught her if yet she, she had stopped anywhere in Arizona. Dyes her hair. I mean, the license plate issue. And I know you're probably going to deal with some of this stuff in, in your next book, but I don't know, all that stuff together.
1: Well, and I will deal with a lot of stuff in the next book. But, you know, one of the things I do in this book is I call the license plate issue a a big red, you know, a big red herring. Uh, Well, maybe I I don't discuss it in this book. Probably in the next book I'll I'll talk about it as a red herring. Um, Because what makes a license plate more obvious than turning it upside down?
0: What if she left in such a haste? She took it off while, while she's inside so nobody could, like write it down. So what is this strange car in the neighborhood? And then in her haste to flee, she maybe gets outside of town and then stops and puts it on and doesn't even realize it's upside down. That's speculation. It's, argu- it's argument on the evidence. That, that's just argument for the jury.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess there's just, there's, there's no evidence to support the idea of, of you know, and what, her doing that. Why would she need to why would she need to take the license plate off? Would she have taken the license plate off before she went in the house? I mean, there's that begets a lot of questions as well.
0: I know, but you're not dealing with a normal person, okay? And you yeah. said she's a big manipulator and she thinks she's smarter than everyone else.
1: You know, and, and, I, and I talk about that in the book. You're right, because uh, I can only look at the situation logically. But the problem is that you and some of what you offer, not that it doesn't have a decent foundation, but but you are trying to get in the mindset of Jodi Arias. And I don't think when you get into that mindset that you, you, you know, that you can use logic to discern her, her actions. You're going to have a tough time making, you're, you're kind of making a diagnosis as you're trying to speculate on her actions. And I think mm-hmm. that's... That's something that, that, that you, you're just not going to have success in doing, I
0: guess. You know, in the book, you talk about the pedophile letters and um, how they ended up never being used. And you think that if the state had used them, there's a chance that the jury, a good chance the jury would have believed they were forgeries written by Jody and, and that maybe she'd be on death row as a result. Yes. Uh, can, what was on those three by five cards? That were recovered from her cell.
1: You, as far as the verbiage, yes. You're, you're not going to believe me, but I can't. I can't. I can't recollect. I really can't.
0: Oh dear. Well, if you have them, why don't you scan them and send them to me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I really can't
1: recollect because the uh, it, it would not have been something impactful because I, I can't recollect. Okay. But it, and it, and it, you know it would be it would be confidential even if I could quite frankly but I'll be honest enough to say I can't recollect
0: okay but it's clear she was practicing his handwriting you you don't dispute that right uh
1: i I, I would say that that's probably something that I couldn't answer other than what I said in the book
0: hmm, okay
1: but the jury would believe it
0: hmm all right do you uh believe that your client miserius slashed Travis's tires
1: again I like to go on the facts and I will agree with detective Flores when he said to CBS 48 hours there's no evidence to suggest that is the case
0: okay meaning nobody saw her
1: meaning there's there's no evidence to suggest that was the case and one of the things that I that, that I guess we could speculate or question in that regard is if Travis Alexander believed it, why was he invited over to her? Why was she invited over to his home on June four, two thousand
0: eight? Okay. Do you think she wrote the uh, email to Lisa Andrews?
1: Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pair Detective Flores again and say there's no evidence to suggest that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Approve that. At the first trial, Juan Martinez stood before the jury and said that there wasn't any porn on Travis's computer, and that became a big issue at the second trial. Do you think it really would have made a difference to the first jury if they heard it?
1: Well, that would be something that I will address in the second book and and the third book and how we got to that point and uh, that sort of thing.
0: Do you think it would have changed the minds of the, of, uh, the jurors who voted first degree?
1: Um, you'd have to ask now.
0: Yeah. I'm just not sure that, uh, even if an appellate court finds there's error that it's, it's, it's error that would cause a new trial.
1: No. Like I said, I, 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 I don't want to speak to anything or appeal or affect the viability of her appeal.
0: Okay. So, uh, in the book, you talk about these recorded jail calls. Of your yep. client to lots of people, including her mother. Uh, why do you suppose Juan Martinez did not use them? Was he waiting for Sandy Arias to testify? He could have used them with Jody on the, on the stand.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a question for Juan Martinez. Because you're right, he could have used them with Jody on
0: the stand. I don't remember if Jody said anything like good about her relationship with her mother. Did she say it was a good relationship? Because perhaps that's when he could have used them.
1: You, you know what? And, and as I, pre- one of the things I'm doing as I prepare for this second book is that I am going back through all this YouTube footage of the trial and I haven't gotten to Miss testimony yet. And, uh, so I cannot definitively recall and it's an interesting process for me because, um, I was obviously in the eye of the storm and now I get to kind of observe what happened. And, um, at that point in time, you know, like I say, I, I, I just can't recall exactly what she said okay. about the
0: relationship with her mother. Well, you know, it it does raise, or you you bring out an interesting dynamic between your client and, and her mother, uh, which is evident through the jail calls. But I didn't see any of that, of course, in the courtroom. And even your visit to Wairika, which was kind of comical, but for the circumstances under which you went to Wairika, to, right. to meet I mean, with
1: her family. It's sad. It's sad, right? Oh. I mean, I, I just hear it as sad.
0: Well, the way you wrote it. I know a lot of people funny. hate Mysterious, but it's sad. Yeah, but the way you wrote it, it was funny. Um but <laughs> except 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 for the circumstances. Oh uh, yeah. But okay, so you say her family seemed to be almost disinterested. They had put all her belongings in a shed or something in the back, and she hadn't even gone to trial yet. But it wasn't evident in the court. Her mother's there every day. Did you ask her to be there?
1: I had Very little communication with Sandy Arias. And and I talk about the book, the the reason why in the book. I wasn't a fan of Sandy Arias, and eventually I had very little uh, interest in Sandy Arias or communicating with her.
0: And she and uh, her daughter never thanked you for your work after all those years, right?
1: Not at all.
0: I find it really disturbing to read about your efforts to get off the case and go into private practice and be prevented from doing it, and then to hear how Jody Arias was going to ruin your private practice and basically control you until her case was over.
1: That was her mindset. Come, you know, uh, the day in April that Judge Duncan uh, ruled that I could not be off the case.
0: Were you able to handle anything else? I think you had one other case during her the time you were representing her.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would have one or two just depending on the circumstance, like when I wasn't actively in trial, so to speak. But, um, you know, taking business on uh, during the area of trial was something that I just could not really afford to do. Yeah, it did exactly hamper my private practice. And, and still does to some degree, you know, a lot of the calls I get now are people wanting me to, you know, help their uncle who is on death row in Texas. And by the way, do that for free, you know. So, um, that's, that's the kind of call I get now. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that was the reality of the situation. And, you know, I, I say in the book, I reference, well, you know, handling Jody's case was like handling five regular capital and I've handled others before because it was so much, because it became such a storm, and uh, it was all-consuming, no doubt about it. Most capital lawyers will tell you they are working 12 hours a day uh, on a capital case, and that's no joke, and Miss Arius was certainly no different if not, if it didn't require even more hours. I mean, uh, you know, we're talking about a situation where I could, Get, go to trial in the morning, do the trial, come back and listen to testimony uh, on your from your old employer uh, broadcasting on Sirius Satellite Radio. And I can hear all the testimony again and think about what I needed to do for the next day. So it was an all-consuming thing.
0: Did it help you that we were televising it?
1: Oh, boy, that's a pretty esoteric question because it... it, it just seemed like it's something you couldn't get away from um it didn't it didn't help the case uh it might have you know it didn't certainly didn't help the case in the sense that all the hysteria that I would say that's directly related to not necessarily the- tel- televising of the trial but the live streaming of the trial I mean you know you think about infamous cases you know and I had and somebody posted to me the other day that they thought Jody's case was the second most infamous to the OJ case, but there wasn't live streaming during OJ. Uh, the internet if it was around at all. It was only in its infancy and most of us didn't know what it was. Uh, and now people were, can watch the trial on their phones. And uh, I think the live streaming and the TV certainly created the hysteria, certainly caught the hysteria. Now I can't say that when I wasn't driving home that I couldn't, uh, you know, it'd be nice. I can hear a piece of testimony or two in and, and a maybe a different way and think, okay, well, this is a question I need to ask the next day. But, but by and large, I would say the coverage was a huge negative to the entire process.
0: You're listening to the Kerasan Crime podcast series. It's time for a quick break. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to the Karras on Crime podcast series. I'm Beth Karras, and I'm talking to Kirk Nermy, Arizona attorney who defended Jodi Arias when she went to trial the first time in 2013 and was convicted of murder. And then the jury hung on whether or not she should live or die. After her retrial in 2014 into 2015, the jury deadlocked again on her sentence, and she received a life sentence. Kirk Nermey has written a book about the experience of uh, representing Jodi Arias, and he's talking to us about that. So, changing from the ninja story to self defense, you said in the book that you couldn't do a focus group because of limited money available as a public defender. And, but you did have the CBS 48 Hours show and you took it to an undergraduate class or group of students, showed it to them and had them fill out a questionnaire. And nobody believed the ninja story. Right. All right. Did you take that to your client, to Ms. Arias, and then she changed her story? I mean, what was the timeline?
1: Well, I can't I can't disclose any confidential information, but um, that's that's you can use logic to deduce where uh, how that went.
0: Okay, so sometime after that is when she came up with the self defense. All right, you talk about uh, you have a chapter called "Viva Las Vegas." Now, you and Jennifer yes. Wilmot went to Las Vegas and you were looking for um, somebody because you thought she might be hiding evidence from you. And you find a guy who has apparently met her through, I don't know, right into her in jail or something, one of the, one of the suitors that she kind of yes. hooked from the jail. What was the evidence that she was hiding from you? You said it wasn't all that big a deal.
1: Yeah, it wasn't all that big a deal. And I certainly couldn't discuss that because of, of confidentiality in terms of what we have obtained, something that, that never, made, never saw the light of day. But uh, I think that the, the point of writing that chapter is the to describe the length that uh, myself and, and all of the defense team had to go to in order to try to make sure that our client wasn't sabotaging herself and to save her life.
0: Well, how hard did you work at, if you can say it? trying to convince her not to testify. It was your your advice, right? You say in the book you preferred that she just stayed quiet and let you argue manslaughter or second degree. And just keep her off I the
1: said, stand. I said if I had it my way. Capital cases get more complicated, and obviously because we have these mitigating circumstances and the client's right to tell their story, the jury's right to give meaningful consideration to all these mitigating circumstances. The fact that the case was a capital case uh, certainly kind of changed the dynamic of where the case had to go and what information has to be disclosed. I think that was to the state's advantage. Um, capital juries are much more inclined to convict uh, based on the dynamics of the way we select them as opposed to uh, a what we would call a normal jury. And so all that was to the state's uh, advantage in terms of, of garnering a conviction. Um, and I kind of lost track of your question there, so uh, I don't know if I specifically hit it or not.
0: Yeah, well, I just, did did you work hard to try to convince or not to testify, or simply just? Well, be- yeah, that that would that would that
1: would be privileged. But ultimately, like I say, some of that goes by the wayside when we talk about mitigation because certain evidence has to be, you know, not using this area uh, situation specifically you know when a client sits down and they have these mitigating factors and they do uh, we're going to look at mitigation and we give a client you know in a typical case we give a client an MMPI and maybe we look for brain damage or whatever the case might be whatever we suspect that information has to be shared by the state uh so and to be disputed by the state and in this case really the mitigation was part of the of the trial. So it all kind of gets wrapped up uh, together.
0: Same thing for the aggravation. The aggravation was part of the trial. I mean, right? What, yeah. I mean, ultimately
1: the aggravation was, uh, you know, she uh, she killed him so brutally that therefore you should kill her. Yeah. I mean, that's the state's aggravation.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and,
1: and you know, and that... You know, it would probably bore people to death, but that's the subject of a lot of litigation in Arizona right now. Uh, it was going on towards the third trial, this idea that, you know, you can't commit a murder in Arizona. Uh, there are, there's but one circumstance you could commit a murder in Arizona and not be eligible for the death penalty and, and, uh, making meaning that the narrowing that the courts are supposed to do and the prosecutors are supposed to do from the Supreme Court precedent isn't happening. It's everyone. Everyone is death penalty
0: eligible. So all the, there's at, at least one circumstance that will fit every murder in Arizona, is what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I mean, the only one I've been able to conceptualize, and we went back through this when we, uh, when we uh, looked at felony murder and started arguing about felony murder. The only circumstance I could envision in Arizona where somebody is not death penalty eligible is where if you were to walk up to someone, shoot them, from behind, so they didn't see it coming, in the head, and they died instantly and didn't suffer. That's it. Because under the state's felony murder theory that I that I outline in the book, any crime, any murder that, that happened indoors could be a uh, first-degree murder, because right. it's it's a burglary. It's a robbery. Right. You know, and so that is... Um, that is the subject of a lot of the litigation that's going forward now. And I, and I think the lawyers that are in that will probably have some success because ultimately, and we talked about the death penalty and discretion and things of that nature earlier. Ultimately, there's a real problem with any case when somebody is sentenced to death when the aggravating circumstances are something that, that, that are a part of the killing, that are hard to separate from the killing.
0: What I find also um different from me because it's not what we do in New York, but Arizona and other states as well do this. You don't have to plead your theory separately, so with one count of murder, jurors like you know, seven jurors could think it's premeditated and five could think it was felony murder and I seem to recall there being that kind of a split at least. Not all jurors thought it was felony murder. Only some did, but right. maybe all thought it was premeditated in your case. But anyway, I've, I've covered cases in other states where the jurors are not unanimous on the theory, but they are unanimous that it's all first-degree murder. We just can't agree on what type of murder, what, the way it was committed. To me, that seems unconstitutional because it's not my experience. It's not the way we do things in New York. But going back to— Well, yeah,
1: I, had made the, I had made the argument before trial that this was, this was an avenue for— the state to get two avenues for the state to get the death penalty uh, when only one should exist. I mentioned in the book, to me, in my mind, this case was one in which she either committed premeditated murder or she didn't. I mean, where's uh, I see no logic in the felony murder theory. And I, I still, to this day, and I'll talk about it a little bit in the next book, but still stand uh, amazed that the jury found her guilty of felony murder.
0: Right. But not all 12.
1: Not all 12.
0: Right. Now, um, going back to the bathroom on June, June 4, 2008, in the book, a few times, you refer to it as a struggle in the bathroom. Clearly, it's a terrible struggle. I mean, I know the police say it was one of the bloodiest scenes they'd ever they'd, they had ever seen, but in i just want to give you my take and then see what you think about it because in my opinion it wasn't a struggle between two people fighting each other it was a struggle of him trying to get away and of her trying her hardest to kill him because i do think there's a good argument to be made that the shot was first and it stunned her that it didn't kill him um and i don't happen to think it matters the order of the wounds it doesn't matter for some reason the state Originally, proceeded with shot and shot was first, and then it changed on the Eva trial. But well, let me
1: stop you there. Why doesn't it Why doesn't it matter to you, given what you given what you said before about this plan and waiting for Enrique to leave and that and, and being in a rush at five o'clock before because, he got home?
0: Because I, I I think that uh you know this was all premeditated. She just wanted to get him in the shower, shoot him in the head, and leave, kind of clean. Just shoot him okay, in the head but, and kill him.
1: But then why would she grab the knife first under your, in your thinking?
0: I don't think she did. I think the knife was the backup. Okay. The, the gun probably jammed. I, again, it's speculation. We don't have the stuff, right. but that's what makes sense to me. So that he's, he's stunned. He shot in the head, but not through the brain. And, and he is on his hands and knees trying to get out right because you can tell from the height of the blood spatter you know crawling by the tub and over by the, the the toilet and then he manages to stand up at his sink and he's spitting and he's smearing and he's dripping and she's stabbing him in the back and i mean it's hard to kill someone Right. And he now he's he's trying to get out. And that big smear on the wall, that's the wounds from his back. He's like he's 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 like his back is against the wall and he smears the wall. And then he falls at the threshold to the bedroom, just feet away from the door to leave. If he gets out in that hallway, it's up for her. I mean, the gig is up. Right. She's going to. He's going to drip blood in the hallway, and she's not going to have a five-day getaway. She's got to kill him before he gets out the door, and that's why she slashes his throat. That's kind of my take in looking at it. They're not fighting. There's only a few defensive wounds. He gets shot. She, she, he's still, like, you know, alert enough to grab the blade when she stabs him, but after, there are no defensive wounds, I think, after the initial grabbing of the blade. That's kind of—that's what speaks to me of the scene in the, um, in the bathroom not a struggle between two people, except that he's trying to flee her. What do you think?
1: Well, boy, there's there's a, there's a lot to be said there because I think um, one of the things I lay out in the book is is how I think it happened and, and why I think it happened. And um, I don't necessarily can say I can look at one concrete piece of evidence and disagree with you. Um, there is... No evidence that Miss Arias suffered any wounds that day.
0: Correct. I forgot to add that, except for the finger—a little something on the finger.
1: You know. So, but I, but I think it depends a lot. It, it all kind of falls from this premise of uh, whether she shot first or staff first, because if you have this knife being drawn, as you will then there was a fight to begin with that would probably not be evidenced by... It wouldn't be evidenced by blood, right? Uh, So, but if he was shot first, uh, yeah, you you, you know, we don't know what happened, but we know that Miss Arias did not suffer any wounds. So I can't disagree with you, per se, but, you know, I guess... What else I re- rely on in the book, I don't come from the theory that you know that she that she, that, that the stab wounds came first. I came from the theory that it was shot first. Um, so you're right, and I talk about in the book. Did he aspirate blood over the sink? Yes. Uh, did he run down the hallway? Yes. Um, and like I say, you know. Um, there are, I'll say this, there are a lot of problems with the idea that this was a self-defense case. I mean, I don't outline a self-defense theory, so I think part of what you're asking me is, and indirectly kind of say, well, do do I believe a self-defense theory? Yeah. And right. what I would say is two things. Uh, what I What I say in the book is, it's not what I believe doesn't matter in a court of law. You know, I mean, I don't Neither the prosecutor or the prosecutor, to some degree, I guess, the defense attorney doesn't get to speculate their personal opinion. I don't get to say, "Well, here's I've looked at the evidence, ladies and gentlemen. Here's what I think." It's entirely irrelevant. Um, But I use the facts, the things that we, the tangible things, to say this is probably what happened. And I talk about in the book. I get kind of give this idea that uh, there might have been a certain point in time where. Miss Arius lost it. We talk about murder, second-degree murder. We talk about manslaughter. We talk about heat of passion.
0: She lost it because she didn't die. She lost it because the gun didn't work.
1: That's also possible. (laughs) You know, that's one of the things I say in this book. You know, and and I don't know, maybe it's one of the—I'm sure after we're done uh, via Twitter, I'll get all kinds of, you know— Tweets and so will you about how how we're both so stupid and how it happened this way that way, but perhaps it's one of the more fascinating aspects of the case because the crime scene does not define what happened for us. It just doesn't. It doesn't lender to precise definition. So people are allowed to hear their theory. I mean, Beth, I'll tell you. I mean, I've heard a theories before this trial began. Um, Jody suitors writing me or calling me or whatever. Uh, you know, it was a Mormon blood atonement. It was this or that. Let me tell anybody out there, I'm sure your audience isn't thinking this. this was not a Mormon blood atonement, it was not some kind of ritual, it was not a hit by the Mormon Church, none of the above. The, the conspiracy theories that are out there uh, cannot be disproven, but the reality is it's none of those things.
0: So... Let me ask you a question about Janine DeMarte. You, in, in book one, you criticize her diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, but you adopt it for the retrial. I assume you're going to explain that down the road, or can you give a short explanation now? I, I don't necessarily
1: know that I would adopt it, but we adopted the idea, and, and th- this will be my short explanation, we'll adopt the idea that Miss Arias had a mental illness. We adopted that idea. Okay. No doubt about it. And I and I tell, and I I say in this first book that there is certainly some visceral connection to the idea that uh, Miss Harris had some borderline behavior characteristics.
0: I mean, you do believe that she was sexually abused as a child. You, you you recognize that. I mean, you see signs of it consistent with your experience with other victims. But there's no one she's never said. Well, you probably can't tell us if she ever said it, but uh, no one ever told you. You don't have any other ev- you don't have any evidence of it, I guess, right? You just think that.
1: I have, I have I have well, yeah, based on my observations, yes. Okay.
0: Why did DeMar- and I think
1: those are pretty good. Because, and I'll say this: I think those are pretty good because I've dealt with hundreds of people in that situation, and I see the behaviors.
0: But right, you see a pattern, and uh, and you do a, a good job of explaining that over and over. I mean, you point out, and here's another example of why I think she was sexually abused, and here's another example, and it's it's just peppered throughout the book. Um, and then you you, you visit her family, and it's a, a little bit strange to you. The house, it is, yeah.
1: It, what it's, um, you know, I I do. Uh, I do, you know, you kind of can get a vibe off of certain places and certain things, and um, I, I and I express my vibe standing in a grandmother's house and, and standing in her parents' house. Yeah, you get an insight, you know. You really, uh, I guess, you know, we all know people, and then, and then we may not have a different perspective when we we come to their home and see that they're into this or that or whatever it might be. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of the perspective I tried to share in the book.
0: Um, one other question about Demarte. She developed a test you refer to um, that that would have been given to Travis. It was Demarte, I think, but she gave it to one of Travis's siblings. I mean, if it could have been given to a an alleged abuser, or I'm not sure what the point was. I don't remember, but it was given to one of Travis's yes. siblings. What 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 was that all about?
1: She didn't develop the test. Oh, uh, the test is called the Sarah. And I am loath to recall the exact acronym for it, but it is supposed to be given, uh given to the potential abuser, not a friend or relative.
0: Why was it given to Travis's sibling then?
1: You'd have to ask Dr. DeMarte. Okay.
0: Uh, there's a reference, this may be a question you can't answer, but you on page 120, you refer to uh, Misery having retained privately an investigator who continues to look for this um, elusive Frank, who allegedly saw injuries on her at a um, prepaid legal meeting in Tempe, and he made a joke yes. about it, you never could find him. Uh, this privately retained investigator, are you talking post-trial?
1: Yeah, he uh, had done some interviews um, and I'm going to forget exactly when it was, but he had done some interviews that he was working for Miss Arias. Post-trial, looking, like now? Looking for looking for these people. Um, yeah, I you know, it might have been, when you say post-trial, it might have been before sentencing. I can't recall specifically. Yeah, but this individual went on and said he was doing all this investigation for Miss Arias and what a poor lawyer I was and things of that nature. And mm-hmm. then my understanding is that... Um, that he's no longer working for Missouri's.
0: Oh, okay. Um, What is your assessment, if you can, this is from one of uh, my members, your assessment of uh, Judge Stevens, Sherry Stevens? Do you think you got a good trial?
1: Um, I probably, you know, that's something that would probably relate to the appeal because what any criminal appeal will take a look at is not only what I did, uh, but the rulings Judge Stevens made. So I think... um, I, sh- I sh- will have to politely pass on that question because it relates to her appeal.
0: Okay. Uh, there was quite a brouhaha following the second mistrial, the second deadlock jury. It was March 5th when the identity of the holdout juror, juror number 17, was released, and and also I think uh, somebody screenshotted a document was which um, identified all the jurors. Because th- but those jurors did speak. Uh, they just didn't use their names, but we, we could see them and talk to them, except not juror 17. Um, do you do you know what's going on with the investigation into the release of her name and all the others?
1: I, I really couldn't speak to that, uh, although I'm aware. Or, well, I should say this is my understanding that, uh, and you referenced it, I don't know if it was all the other jurors or what, gave a press conference.
0: Right. Uh, I was there.
1: Yeah. 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 I didn't know if it was all of them or just some of them. It was, it was most of them
0: because one of the al- – an alternate and an excused juror was pre- – there were 11 jurors, but one of them was a juror who had been excused, a woman from the right. middle of the front row. So it wasn't all 11 deliberating jurors who voted for death. Right.
1: Most so, of them. I mean, obviously, you know, those jurors kind of um, exposed themselves, so to speak. And a- as far as as far as far the other juror goes, I don't think I should should speak to that issue.
0: You mentioned in the book, and I know that you'll deal with it in your next book, um, you talk about media coverage. You said that um, the media had no interest, at least the television. I suppose you're talking about HLN. No interest other than profit in airing the trial live. I just want to go on. You said it was on page 246. I just want to go on the record saying, I left the DA's office to go to Court TV in 1994 because of the educational value. I know it changed (laughs) over time, but I left to educate people about the justice system, which is what I continue to do on my website. But um, I don't know that it was all that profitable.
1: Uh, Well, I I would say, and I've seen the figures, and it seemed pretty profitable to me, and I know... You know that the the uh, powers that be, I guess, at HLN was certainly interested in broadcasting the uh, retrial and doing the same things that they did during the first trial. So I would imagine uh, that there was profit in it because let's you know let's face the facts: HLN isn't going to be on TV if sponsors aren't paying for ads and people aren't watching. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're a network, right? I mean, yeah, you can go on and say, I want to educate people, and I, I, knowing you, I completely believe what you're saying. But, um, I think you would have to, or maybe you won't want to concede in a public forum, but, that not all of what is going on there is so educational. Uh, and not all the media coverage, how about this, not all the media coverage was educational. Right. Uh, much of it was salacious. And, uh, and I think that that helps drive profit,
0: right? Uh, yes, it's hard, it's hard to disagree with that point. It's hard to disagree with that point. Because, but there was a lot because. of salacious material to work with in all my years of covering trials, which were 19. I, there was never a case that had what came together in the in the first trial, and and, and we're talking sex, religion, uh, you know, relationship, good-looking couple. Um, dirty little secrets. I mean, it had all the elements and it was really no holds barred because it wasn't a sex crime where you don't identify the victim. And you, I mean, the pictures were, were out there. I mean, phone sex. I mean, oh my God, i never forget sitting in the courtroom and watching all these Mormon ladies in the audience with their hands over their ears when you, when the recording was playing, it's like, oh my God, you just can't, you don't get this in any other trial. I've never experienced it. So that's right. why and, it was. There was a lot of material for the media to work with.
1: Right, and you know, obviously, uh, you know, and I, when I I could stand by my my comments about profit. I mean, look, not just HLN, other stations covered it. And Lifetime took the words out of our opening statement and titled to a movie and produced that sucker. Was in the middle of production before the verdict was rendered.
0: Yeah. Dirty little secret. You know, yes. do you do you see the media coverage as having an appellate issue? I know you're not doing the appeal, but do you see an issue?
1: Well, I, I say in the book I would be surprised if it wasn't a part of it, but I probably don't want to go into any more of that because I'm not an appellate attorney and I don't want to affect any arguments they might yeah, make.
0: Yeah, okay. I just want to also go on the record saying at least as of the time I left uh, Turner Broadcasting, I'm unaware of any trial that we had covered. Um that was overturned because of the camera coverage, because of gavel-to-gavel coverage. I think years ago, there had been one mistrial because a witness was watching coverage and didn't know that he couldn't. And the judge is like, okay, that's it. And, you know, they started over, but it wasn't a big trial. And it, I mean, it wasn't a long trial. They weren't long into it. Um, You know, there's a, one of my members has a question for you. Um, about you know the end of the trial, did you feel as though uh, you had a kind of PTSD when the trial was over? And did you have to take uh, some time off?
1: <laughs> um, I will say I don't necessarily know I had to wait till the trial was over uh, <laughs> to have PTSD. And yes, I did take some time
0: off. Good, and she wants to know you you have you recovered and. Another one wants to know if your current practice has been affected by the outcome of the trial, which I think you touched on a little
1: bit. Well, yeah, I did. I, I, it has been, you know, a lot of, a lot of the uh, calls I get now are, are related to people who want free help for their, their uncle or some re- relative on death row uh, and, or other crazy calls, if you will. And, you know, obviously uh, I've, had to scale back my practice in order to write this book. I talk about in the book after writing a 40,000 page or 40,000 word uh, diet book that, um, you know, that took several weeks and, and it was okay. But taking on a book uh, of such massive size uh, took a lot of time. I mean, to sit down, it probably took me four to six months with having a a small practice on the side in order to generate this book. And I set out to write this book. I I wasn't intending on writing a three-part book, but you can imagine, uh, you know, we haven't touched on it too much yet, but I got this case in 2009 as a assigned to it as a public defender. It was, you know, given to me in essence, and I describe how. But I bring that up with the point of the fact that Five and a half years later is when the case, you know, became concluded, and it concluded for me. And so I started writing this book and realizing, holy crap, how am I going to write all this stuff for five years of life uh, in one in one book? It just wasn't possible. It was too, you know, overpowering. How was I going to do this? So I so once I got to the point where I decided, all right, I can chop this up in the three books, that makes it more tangible. It helps me kind of cover the process more. It helps it eased my writing process, and I started um, more vigorously into this first book. And now as I, you know, the second book covers the trial, uh, I am in the process of watching the videos and making notes and I let a little hand slip about the red herring of the license plate being upside down. And I'm able to look at those things and express those things. And that's really what the next book will be about.
0: So, uh, but I assume you're going to tell us uh, about things that, or your thought process, not stuff we saw since we all saw the second, we all saw the trial. So you're going to tell sure. us- I mean,
1: my, my thought process behind it, what was going on behind the scenes, you know, I, I, I have a, Power to observe things that I wasn't able to see when I was, you know, doing a witness, uh, you know, working with the witness and, you know, seeing Jennifer and and Mysterious interact, uh, things of that nature that I'll be able to comment on and talk about some of the things that were happening um, behind the scenes, so to speak. You know, when the when the uh, feed went down, and uh, as you know, we would stomp back into the little room to the side of the courtroom and talk to our client or talk to her in the morning and that sort of thing before court started so um, and some of the some of the chaos that uh, that went on that people probably don't don't completely know about
0: do you have you started the second book
1: I've started uh, watching the trial okay without the writing put, so
0: you're taking notes I haven't
1: put pen to paper yet what I want to do uh, is to get a whole sense of it um, and um so then i can start figuring out how i want to um put this forward to the uh to the readers so like i say i, I it, it, writing a book always sounded like a lot more fun and a lot easier thing to do before i actually sat down and wrote, wrote a book because no it's, kidding. it's a daunting task it is a daunting task and your audience may not uh, understand that or believe that because i would have been skeptical to that point um, before I began on this endeavor, but uh, it is it is a, a rigorous
0: process. So I um, just two more things because you were very generous to say you could give me forty five minutes to an hour, and I've taken one hour and three minutes so far. So I know we will wrap this up. But I of All course right. I have more questions. But one of my members wanted to know if you'd be willing to answer some of our questions in writing if I get you on the site. Would you? Um, if they were to ask you some questions, would you? Would you talk? Would you?
1: Uh, online? I'll I'll think about that. How about that? I'll leave leave them with a cliffhanger. I'll think about
0: that. Okay. Uh, I do have more questions, but I don't want to take up more of your time today. Maybe we'll do another part if if members have more questions too, although we've covered a lot of ground here and I'm looking forward to book two and three. Um, And I just want to say that your message is loud and clear in this book that you you do not like Miss Arias and that because you represented her, it does not mean you believed her or even liked her,
1: and I'm glad that message got across because I think it's it's crucial, and, and it gets into maybe a more uh, esoteric discussion about how trials are treated in the media, uh, trials as reality TV events versus important life events, uh, and you know the attorneys, and I and I make this point in the book, and I and I'm glad you brought it up because I do want to leave. Uh, your uh, listeners and subscribers with this this point today is that no attorney that represents a client on any particular charge is endorsing what they did. You know a DU, even as far away from a, a DUI client, they are not there to uh, endorse drunk driving. A domestic violence case uh, attorney is not there to endorse you know, endorse domestic violence or what their client did. They may believe in their client's innocence, they may not, um, but what, again, what they believe is irrelevant, and, those, and this is also true for those of us who represent those accused of murder. We don't endorse murder. We don't uh, necessarily believe in our client's innocence, but we will certainly fight for the Constitution and to enforce the rights of our clients because we believe those rights protect each every each and every individual. And no matter how much flack I get, uh, I will make no apologies for defending anyone's constitutional rights, even if that person's name is Jody Arias.
0: I don't know how you did it every day, walking through the crowd and in the courtroom, the hallway. I mean, there was just so much support for Juan Martinez, and there was so little for your side. I don't know how you did it well.
1: Maybe maybe my PTSD helped me out. I don't know. <laughs> As I say in the book, had I known, had I known what it was going to be become, I might have gone to the airport and saw that file. But <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. I'm sure you... it, it became what it became. And you know, part of the uh, endeavor there is that uh, you know I am committed to those rights, and you know. I don't care what eye in the storm it is or what the client is. I will fight hard for my clients or smartly for my clients or whatever the case may be to uh, to ensure their rights and to ensure the best outcome possible. And that's why I say one of the things I say in the book is, you know, like it or not, I did it, in my own estimation. If I could do it my own heart, I did a pretty damn good job because one of the most hated women in America is not on death row.
0: That's right. Yes, you did. You saved her life. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much, All Mr. Right. Nermy. And uh, maybe we'll have another chat, but I really appreciate your giving me more than an hour of your time. Just a note and an update about Kirk Nermey, I did this interview shortly after his book about Jody Arias came out. After the book was published, there was a complaint filed with the Arizona Bar because he did not get Jody Arias's permission to publish this book. And he disclosed confidential information. So he was sanctioned by the bar in the fall of 2016 and had initially agreed to a four-year suspension of his law license. And then he changed his mind and he agreed to disbarment so he could no longer practice law. He's moving on, doing other things in his life, perhaps doing more writing.